Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store, long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders, spinning their patient webs, beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulchre, where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Lens of Palm, do convene to judge this offering of the cinema being worthy of our esteem, to be cast down as worthless hokum. Let us all as in judgment. Welcome, brethren and sisteren. I declare tonight's conclave of the Cinemania Society to be in session. All right. Please be seated. I also welcome our listeners, whom I shall now warn. We disciples of the Cinemania Society have studied the mysteries of the motion picture and meditated upon the silver screen for many years. Therefore, we have become inured to the films we scrutinize, which may contain hazards unsuitable to young and sensitive ears. As such, we advise anyone listening to do so with discretion. Guard your ears carefully, lest you develop a severe and irreversible case of cinemania. Present at our conclave tonight are Brother Zachariah, guardian of the door. You bet your buckaroo bonsai I'm here. Brother Daniel, possessor of the word. Yes. Brother Andre, voice from the outer world. Yeah. <laughs> Brother Ethan, keeper of the lenses. It is through my charges that truth is refracted. I am Brother Andy, Master Illuminator. I will be serving as the Pontifex of Presentment for tonight's subject of scrutiny. Jerzy Skolimowski's 1978 film, The Shout. This psychosexual drama was considered something of an avant-garde piece at the time and features a string of popular theatrical actors of the day. John Hurt and Alan Bates go head-to-head -head for the affections of the delightful Susanna York in a battle of wits and mysterious aboriginal curses. Stuff up your ears if it all becomes too much, dear listeners. Brother Daniel will act as master castigator for this conclave. Brother, present the charges. Oh, we have quite a lot of charges for you today. This film is guilty of the use of cricket as a narrative device, expecting us to understand cricket, thinking cricket. that cricket is interesting, interrupting cricket, cricket, cricket. a perfectly good game of cricket with psychosexual drama, not actually being cricket. cricket, having John Hurt make the weirdest ASMR videos we have ever seen, Alan Bates mumbling delivery of his lines in a way that is almost incomprehensible, while it's covered in sadly comprehensible cow feces, expecting us to believe Don Hurt could land Susanna Hurt, use of native mysticism as a trope, having a man stumble through sand dunes in a disheveled coat at the beginning of the film and not have him say it's or um and now for something completely different. Although the film was shot in the UK in the 1970s and we are all aware that Monty Python was still a thing ending the film Python sketch, ripping off the ending of the persecution and assassination of John Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade, 
poor use of the white saber trick, making us watch John Hurt get to second base. Not knowing how many crickets or wickets that second base would represent in the game of cricket, watching John Hurt age before our eyes. Watching John Hurt's eyes remain 427 years old throughout the duration of the film. Having us believe that a man named Alan could be a sexual predator. Way too much animal symbolism. Long-winded, pointless stories. Universal inability to walk in a straight line. Violence against sheep. Making Alan Bates show off way too much 1970s body hair for the general viewer's comfort. Making us look at John Broadbent in nothing but a jockstrap. Criminal underuse of Tim Curry. Bad wind effects. Violence to carrots. Bad running. And finally, being the weirdest movie about cricket that we have ever seen. Thank you, Brother Daniel. And before we dive too deeply into this swirling vortex of liquid madness, let us first cleanse ourselves in the soapy, soapy delights of commercial enterprise. We return fully cleansed and ready to go on, though our souls may wither and wane. Brother Andre, I believe you have some warnings for us as well. Mm -hmm. Before proceeding into the shout, we here at the Cinemania Society would like to advise and warn you that the following content contains the following troubling subject matter. We got violence. We got psychological abuse. We got cultic abuse, we got misogyny, we got rape, we got racism, white saviorism, cultural relativism, bad representation of mental illness, and body horror, if any of these would potentially halt your enjoyment of the Cinemania Society podcast, we advise that you skip these next few episodes. Very well, brothers, it's time for us to delve in and find out exactly what we're dealing with here. For our first part of The Shout, Brother Ethan, can you tell us what it is is going on? Certainly, Brother Andy. The film opens with a seemingly nonsensical series of images. Uh, we are first treated to Susanna York in a nurse's outfit pulling up in a very French car. So France's answer to the Volkswagen, the Ducheval. Um, literally a two horsepower car. Uh, she runs into a typical English country mansion to inspect the trio of bodies laid out under sheets in a dining hall. This is followed by a protracted, unstabilized long lens shot of an Australian Aborigine in an 18th century naval officer's jacket, weaving through sand dunes toward camera to produce a folding telescope. This is all under the entire film's credits. There is no end credits at the end of the picture. They roll them all right now. Um, Brother Ethan, I, I would I would call out, I think you've missed the first most important nonsensical image, which the film opens with uh, a picture of a man in a jockstrap smacking a gong. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, the, the, Technically, that's not part of the film. That's that is absolutely opening image. part of the film, as that's we will discover later on with the parallel symmetry during during the game. That, it, I, it's not. That was the, the film company used the man with a gong for all of their films. The, the, it used to be a, a, a traditional thing that you begin cinema with. You have the man bonging the gong. That was the thing. You knew you were in the cinema, ready to receive film. It's I, the 1970s. Get I it on. I completely disbelieve this illusion. Get it on. 
I can <laughs> absolutely heavily assure, you, assure you that man with a gong appeared so many times, it's ingrained in the memory of people watching film from that era. He was a regular they, at Studio 54. Well, they had to put him in the jock strap so you'd know for sure that he was using an actual mallet to bang the gong. Well, that's how you knew that what you were about to view was art and not merely eroticism. (laughs) The one that's the eroticism is where he's not wearing the jockstrap or carrying a mallet, but he still bangs the gong. Bangs even harder. (laughs) (laughs) I stand corrected. So that's (laughs) sadly, sadly corrected. (laughs) There's a smash cut from the uh, Aborigines telescope to a motorcycle headlight. Uh, Alan Bates, as the motorcyclist, speeds past the self-same 2CV6 from earlier, exchanging dirty looks with Susanna York at the wheel. John Hurt, who I would say is young enough that he might actually be classified as John Boo Boo at this point, uh, Uh, is beside her in Cricket Whites. They pull up to the same mansion we just saw a moment ago. Hurt exits curtly. York drives off and enter Tim Curry in an Austin Mini, classic original Austin Mini. Um, speaking of bang a gong, and that's probably a good thing that Mark Boland isn't in this picture because uh, he'd be looking at his fate sitting there. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's important here to note that Curry's character is never actually named in the picture. However, according to the IMDb page, he's playing the English poet and author Robert Graves, who penned the short story from which the screenplay is adapted. How meta. That's not like we've seen a movie recently where they did that before. Uh, as he enters, uh, a woman simultaneously admonishes him for being a pervert one moment. Don't you look up my dress! Then flirts coquettishly with him the next moment. Little does she know the fire she's playing with is Curry's only just three years off the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, there's no sign of that sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania, however, as he and Madame mixed signals exit to the grounds, where we were treated to a montage of an idealized cricket game being set up. Peacock strut crusty old bastards in folding chairs leer at women in nurses outfits cows wander around it's a good old bucolic english spring morning so british so very very british all those peacocks just keep coming up over and over again like we just keep getting close-ups of the peacocks like there was Uh, an outbreak at the zoo we're british and we like peacocks all right it's a thing (laughs) We really, really <laughs> like peacocks. You uh-huh. can't have a fancy mansion if you don't have peacocks. Uh-huh. It reminds us of when we used to control India, you see. Did you want me to bring the peacock in? I've no. got it on a leash. No, get back into it's, your hole. It's back. been pecking me quite severely. Back oh. in your hole. Oh. You say peacock and no one bats an eye, but you say poopcock and everyone loses <laughs> their minds. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, if, uh, if the delightful oh peacock were known as the poop balls, would it be any less beautiful? Oh my god. I think it more would, so. yes. No, no, it, it would it would be less beautiful. I, I've I've actually had to work around a place, a naval facility that had peacocks on its grounds for some reason, and they have the most annoying just call and it's constant and they do it at night and you can understand why the romans like like to eat the freaking tongues of these things just to shut them up um, (laughs) uh, i'll have to admonish you there brother zachariah in fact it is majestic and beautiful and awesome shut up 
just like the British dental system, right? Okay. Well, if, if we have concluded our, our, our peacocking and navel gazing, all of this mysterious tone setting gives way to the actual story almost eight minutes into the film's scant 86 minute runtime when we see a group of men pushing a scoring shack across the lawn, followed by Graves, well, Tim Curry playing Graves. Uh, he's met by Sir Robert Stevens, whose presently unnamed character we shortly learn as a chief medical officer. Ah, we may now surmise that this must be some manner of institution, um, who disregards any professional courtesy required by his esteemed colleague, the good Dr. Frankenfurter, then instead welcomes him to score their cricket match. Uh, Frankenfurter takes no offense, to, however, when the chief doc informs him that his co-scorer will be one Charles Crossley. Uh, whom he describes as the most intelligent man in the place, uh, who's also apparently well-read, well-traveled, loves motorbikes, but who is not entirely normal because he believes that his soul has been shattered into four pieces. All of this gives further foreshadowing to the notion that the film is set at some fancy institution. Uh, when asked what exactly constitutes normal, the chief has an idiosyncratic answer. Points out one tree that he says is normal, and points out another big majestic oak and says that one isn't normal. So, so who that's the fuck knows what, or cares? So that's what the hell they were talking about. His delivery was so British, I could not ascertain what it was. And because I watched this with a device that did not have any kind of subtitles, I was lost. Yeah, it's yeah, the emoting is impenetrably British. Also, I found it very interesting that it looks like they spent the most money on was the scoring shack than any oh, of yes, the other there's, um, <laughs> there's a very good reason for this, because without the incredibly impenetrable scoring system, no one would ever know when it actually ends and they can go home. Vital, vital role. This is why <laughs> they have to have two people do it. So this is cricket. <laughs> I wanted to note that like throughout this entire um like monologue of the doctors we get this background dialogue going on that is so badly recorded and dubbed back in yes. it sounds like someone mumbling directly yes. into the mic like this and then this played back in the film like this and you don't quite know oh what they're God. saying but it's at full volume yes <laughs> like it's oh, so someone like... whispering in your ear rather than shouting in the background oh my god it's terrible it's... oh my god yeah and was... yet still better than 2010 sound design oh my god <laughs> you know what it's just it's avant-garde and majestic and you all love it and shut up how about that listen listen don't hold background christopher noise, nolan background noise, as background the noise. <laughs> don't hold christopher nolan as like the single standard for sound design for current films all right that guy i, I don't understand what he's doing <laughs> he's groundbreaking that's what he's doing that's uh i don't know if that's ground you want to be breaking there uh, <laughs> It's shale. It's all shale. <laughs> um, so Curry's character Graves is introduced to Alan Bates' character Charles Crossley, um, which means that this is whom we saw earlier as the ravening biker, giving the eye to Susanna York's as yet unnamed character in the Dushima. Uh Crossley is quite polite with a cultured university accent. He goes into how he likes to torment the doctor by making up symbols in his dreams for the doctor to interpret. This must mean the doctor is a psychiatrist, which means the institution must be mental. Freudian symbolism is high as uh, Crossley is handling his bone inside the shack. Uh, oh, to, God. Uh, uh, I should point out he has a literal bone that he is handling. This isn't some kind of metaphor. There's a lot of bone handling in the cricket shack, No, no, right? it is a metaphor, but it is a literal bone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but it is a literal <laughs> bone, uh, part of which has been sharpened to a point. Uh, more on this later. But he kicks it out of sight as he proceeds to build upon his reputation as an unreliable narrator, also more on this point later, by asking Graves if he can tell him a, quote, true story. This is some definition of the word true we haven't yet heard before, as he tells us that he alters the details, characters, and climax of said story in order to keep it true, and titillatingly involves people whom he claims are present at the cricket game. almost 20% into the full run of the film when we finally crossfade into the main story of the film, which is Crossley's story. Uh, it picks up where the opening credits left off, an Australian Aborigine in a naval officer's coat running around through the dunes. And then we smash cut to John Hurt playing Anthony Fielding in the story and Susanna York playing Rachel Fielding again in Crossley's story, awakening on those self-same dunes where they dozed off while sunbathing. This, I have to say, stretches my personal suspension of disbelief to the breaking point. This is supposed to be happening in fucking England, after all. Son? <laughs> in England? <laughs> Never! It's, it's important for me to note that due to certain treaties and ancient obligations, we technically own the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Something that... you grabbed during colonialism, is it? I do have to say that, you know, this is supposed to be in the British Riviera in Devon, um, which means you get to see the sun for maybe a full three weeks across a given year. And that's not all. What weeks they are. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd completely lost. I I should have noticed this, but, um, you know, having moved back from Interzone to California, like this just slipped my mind entirely. (laughs) Do they have a lot of sun in Interzone? Uh, no, not an interzone. It's covered by the smog of the black, but, um, in California, yes, they have sun, um, and fire, <laughs> lots of fire. Oh, yes. After awakening, uh, Anthony and Rachel described to each other a shared dream. The Aborigine we just saw meandering the dunes. They're both, uh, seem very Englishly unsurprised by this. The emotion level seems to rise up to right about the collarbones, and then that's about as far as it goes. Um, neither of them seems to find it too odd that they shared the dream together. Rachel recovers her sandals from the dunes only to find one is missing its buckle, as well as a broken cow bone, but a different broken cow bone from the one we'd seen earlier. Uh, don't forget these pieces. Uh, they're important. And then she freaks out for no apparent reason and reburies the bone as if it's like, oh, this is a sign of someone or something that I killed myself and I better rehide it so my husband doesn't see it. Yeah, that's an odd point. Yeah, you're right. She does that. Um, but yeah, no, if you're starting to feel a little bit like the guy in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this means something. This is important. Um, don't be surprised because that's about the feeling you should be having. Um, Anthony and Rachel proceed to the village cobbler where Rachel leaves her shoes to be repaired. Outside, Anthony exchanges some significant looks with the cobbler's wife, played by Carol Drinkwater, who's better known as Alexander DeLarge's busty nurse in A Clockwork Orange. I, I uh, wish to point out I'm making the great big tits motion with both hands at this point. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm doing it. I'm making the double, motion. double, double. Yeah, this is the this this is the same actress we saw um, in Flagrante Delicto and the very end scene of Clockwork Orange. Um, Maximum tits. Indeed. 
Uh, uh, Drinkwater yeah. herself is clearly mm -hmm. thirsty for Anthony because she makes eyes with him from the upstairs window. But Rachel doesn't seem to notice this. She comes out as Anthony basically waves off the cobbler's wife, and they turn around and almost walk into a mirror being carried across their path by a couple of workmen. An astute viewer might notice that the background reflected behind Rachel and Anthony in the mirror is of the asylum building and not the cobbler's shop. It took me actually the second watch to notice that. It was like, oh, this is I... clearly an art director making an art director Whoa. capital C creative choice. I completely <laughs> missed that. I knew yeah, that there was I, something I significant going on, but I think I got distracted by my boredom with the film. <laughs> yeah, I that's saw how it you know a... it's significant. That's how yeah. you realize because you don't see it. Uh, There's lots of ham-handed visual symbolism in throughout this whole movie. Very, very like, you know, I am an art director making strong visual symbolism here. Like same thing with, uh, uh, with the, the bee. There's a bee at one point you see floating over Alan's head. So many of these choices feel like they were made after the filming of the movie. So they're so heavily inserted after the fact that they make absolutely no sense. I didn't realize which building was in the mirror, but I, was, I did see, wait, that is not the right reflection. And I had no idea what it was supposed to mean. What it is feels very Herzogian, early Herzogian. What is the <laughs> symbolism of the bees? I never really figured that one out. The bees! Well, you know, like a bee is buzzing around crazily in his mind. So, you know, like this is, I think it's a suggestion, a subtle suggestion that we all remember that Alan Bates is bug fuck nuts. It's a little too subtle for me, I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it seemed hand-handed to me as somebody who fancied himself a, an art director uh, when he was in his youth. Uh, but anyhow. <laughs> it did remind me a bit of your student film. So, yeah. I was the cinematographer part of that, so. Uh, yes, we, we are uh, long accomplices in committing cinematic crimes. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the uh, cobbler gazes after them concernedly. We cross cut to Anthony dicking around in his music studio, um, engaging yeah. in some late 70s ASMR. Um, yep. found objects, equipment that's top of the line for the late 70s. And while it's clear he thinks he's going to create a one-man prog rock masterpiece, it's clear he's got more Yoko Ono than Alan Parsons. Uh, whatever he's chain smoking throughout the film, I'm going to bet it isn't tobacco. <laughs> um, what it, nevertheless, the big takeaway is that he neglects his wife in favor of wanking his prog rock dreams. Okay, I completely misinterpreted what was going on with pretty much all of that, which happens throughout the goddamn movie. I thought he was a Foley artist. <laughs> oh, no, no, yeah. we're, we're expected to believe that John Hurt has uh, created a, a, an entire recording studio in a little room in his Devonshire cottage and he's producing some grand progressive opera of some kind that we never really hear much of except for him making weird noises into microphones and messing with incredibly primitive early synthesizers but he never... sardine can asmr how is how is he a believable <laughs> artist with a capital a he never talks about it and to be fair he does get called out on how shitty an artist he is we'll get to that yeah like 80 percent of the way through the movie that's the first time they call him an artist he's referred to as an organist a couple of times that's i just assumed he was like he was a working foley foley recorder yeah it's because he's an <laughs> I assumed that too until until Master Bates called him on it. So wow. well, he's somebody who likes to wank his dreams in uh, his studio and then handle his organ in public at church. Speaking of which, uh, we also see Anthony is neglectful of his work 
uh, his a job as a church organist, and Rachel has to remind him that he's going to be late for the service. Uh, so he uh, runs out the door, hops on his bicycle, gets off to the church, and uh, does arrive late, walks in in the middle of the opening psalm, and starts playing music halfway through. But the cobbler's wife doesn't mind, though, and they make goo-goo eyes at each other during the blistering sermon on moral starvation. Um, moral, moral, moral. Jesus Salvation. is just Salvation. all right with me. Jesus is just all right with Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was rocking out to it the entire time. Uh, nothing as hip as that. This is all that, uh, that <laughs> oh, deadly, yeah. boring, uh, atonal howling that people do in uh, in churches that are stead and conservative. Yeah, shut up, um, brother Zachariah. We all know Jesus thinks you're a dick. That's <laughs> all right. Hey, I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> He was one of my Hebrews, dude. This is, uh, uh, all of this is cross-cut with uh, somebody mysteriously sabotaging Anthony's bicycle. We see a suspiciously black pea-coated arm reaching in to uh, let the air out of his tires. So uh, going back into the church, the rest of the village sees this exchange of goo-goo eyes. The old folks clearly disapprove. Love hurts, though, and drink water Mm -hmm. runs off, (laughs) leaving Anthony to the withering judgmental glares from everyone, including the vicar. Uh, Service concluded, Anthony jogs back to his bicycle, only to shock of shocks, find his tires flat. Reinflating them gives Charles Crossley, uh, whom we now see, an opportunity to approach and start a dialogue about his belief in a time of moral starvation that the human soul might take refuge outside the body in a tree or a stone or some such bullshit. and Crossley offers to continue this diatribe while walking with Anthony uh, and talking further, but Anthony wisely declines and and hops on the back of his bike. So we cross cut back to the fielding house where Rachel seems disturbed and we see that Crossley has magically begun lurking nearby. Um, We have no idea how he got from the church to the house, but he's there at the house lurking nearby, playing with her shoes missing buckle in one hand and fingering a nearby nettle plant with the other and nettles being notoriously uncomfortable to handle with any body part. Elsewhere, Anthony gives uh, the cobbler's wife a ride on his bicycle. Folks, get your minds out of the sewer. Sometimes love don't feel like it should, baby, but hurts not so good. He's Uh... rubbish at cycling. They crash and fall giggling into the grass. God help him if he ever actually tries to have sex with her. They should probably end up with navel contusions. No wonder Anthony and Rachel are childless. Uh... Act one. Oh, oh boy! <laughs> and with, with with that, I'm I'm just I'm getting a message. One one moment, one moment, brothers. What is it? What is it, you ancient wrinkly bastard? I'm prepared to bath. Prepared to It's ready, sir. It's one moment. Uh, with that, I'm being told that the time of cleansing is once again upon us. Prepare the mysterious bathing tools as we enter another deep bath of commercial enterprise with these messages. If you needed a, a terrifying ancient man crone, then you got John Hurt. <laughs> Even when he was 26 years old, he was still a terrifying ancient man crone. Yeah, he was, he, was, um, he was born with a face like someone just drew googly eyes on a deployed airbag. <laughs> thank you, everybody. And thank you, Brother Andre, for that uh, sterling examination of one of our 
sinister cinemania suspects and we're about now to move on into act two of uh, the shout brother methuselah you may take the projector out of the room again you're not going to call for it a second or maybe third time though are you of course not, we promise. Because if I put it away, it's quite an elaborate thing to do and it might hurt me quite severely. Yeah, sure, yeah. okay, whatever. Keep that stiff upper lip, Brother Methuselah. All right, I'm wheeling it out now, all right. Here I go. Somebody hit the lights? All right. God, I hate Brother Methuselah. Yeah, he's the worst. Where did he come from, anyhow? He just I... turned up, he's part of the furniture. He was in the video store when I first acquired it. I think he might be a victim of Cinemania. I found a, a nest in the air ducts that appeared to be made out of chewed newspaper. Perhaps he was already living here. You, you know I can still hear you. Wait, he can still Does hear? Does it sound like we care? Brother Zachariah, now yes. it is time for us to continue. Present more of this offering for our consideration. <clears throat> <laughs> you dumb motherfucker <laughs> i know no no doubt no doubt if i must shout shout i will let it all out this yeah. is a film we can do without act two anthony returns home to find crossley hunkered menacingly out front crossley informs him he's been on a hiking holiday and hasn't eaten for days they exchange some strained pleasantries crossley invites himself to lunch an imposition in which Anthony agrees in the most insufferably English way. There is immediately some low-level flirtation between Rachel and Crossley. From the start, some polite busting of Anthony's chops. Crossley takes the piss out of Christianity's view of the human soul as being nothing but a speculation while calmly mashing a wasp with his thumb. First nettles, now wasps. This guy's a real masochist. Rachel asks Anthony to pour Crossley a glass of wine but he declines and instead asks for water, which he proceeds to drink in an ominously sacramental way. He abruptly asks to wash his hands and is pointed upstairs. Yeah, I just want to point out that um, this film is yet another example of why you should never trust a man who drinks with both hands. God damn, no kidding. Yeah, that was creepy <laughs> as fuck. Like he's acting as if it's, you know, he's, he's taking communion or something. It's just water. Oh, well, I read that as he was acting like a two-year-old. <laughs> no. that too. is there a difference i mean yeah it, it goes <laughs> you shouldn't trust a man who's acting like a two-year-old either that's just weird too well we have sir hertz and master bates so crossley goes on full creeper mode and sniffs around upstairs quite literally after inspecting the bedrooms including the mattresses then washing up he gets personal with rachel's stockings hung out to dry in the bathroom fondling and smelling them before returning Crossley sits down and dishes up some absurdly small amounts of food for a man who claims he's been without for days. Clearly, this is bait to provoke dialogue from people accustomed to normal human small talk. Crossley exercises some superb skills in conversational judo and trolls the buildings with increasingly outlandish claims. Chiefly, Crossley claims that he spent 18 years in the Australian outback, once had an aboriginal wife, and that he committed infanticide multiple times per aboriginal law because he knew one day he would leave and wanting nothing of him remaining behind he delivers this final part as he proceeds to explode rachel's wine glass with sympathetic vibration by playing his own as a glass harp he then asks if that shocks them 
Rachel replies that they have not managed to have children and leaves the room shaken. So I, I would say there, there's this surprisingly progressive moment in the film where he tells them that, you know, that he's been out in the outback for 18 years. And then John Hurt lands this like incredibly racist comment like, oh, did you even take an Aboriginal wife? And he just lands like a complete lead balloon. He's like, yeah, I did actually. Got a problem with that? Of course, then it turns out it's like, oh, I also killed like my 18 children and I'm really bad with glassware. <laughs> and like, so like it kind of ruins the moment. But for just a second, I was impressed with this movie. That was I mean, the only thing. <laughs> It Crossley obviously claims that everything he does is in accordance with Aboriginal law. Now, I'm no Aboriginal lawyer. I don't claim <laughs> to have passed the Aboriginal bar. I'm not a practicing Aboriginal solicitor at law or anything like that. But I kind of think that some of these claims he makes, they're probably not in line with any Aboriginal code of conduct what? if you were to actually look into it. No, it's an important point to make because I mean, we have somebody who is a white dude uh, who has already outed himself as an unreliable narrator. Now proceeding to describe the practices of, of a group of people who had been quite viciously subjugated by, by British colonialism. So a wise person would assume anything he says is pure and utter bullshit. Yeah, right. Because and on top of that, we have now like a long, pointless, rambling, unreliable story within a long, pointless, unreliable, rambling story. Yeah, but the people of the time, and by extension, the viewer, has no real way to refute any of this. He just says, oh, yeah, this is Aboriginal law. We don't know. I mean, we have no way of, of quantifying any of this. This is just a random thing he's come out with, and we're just expected to go along with it. Yeah, it's I like... Mean, actually, I, we could probably Google it, but they didn't have that back then. Yeah, it's like, did you have an Aboriginal wife? Ha ha. Well, actually, I didn't. We had a kid and I had to kill it. Aren't you a dick? You know, it really is that. Yeah. This aspect of psychological domination is something that bears a discussion, I think, uh, but not at, not at the moment. Uh, All right. Getting back to it. <clears throat> Crossley justifies his actions by describing Aboriginal infocide as being the only natural death in their culture, every other death being caused either by violence or sorcery. He and Anthony then discuss Aboriginal pointing bones, which Crossley claims to be the most common cause of death in the culture, then goes on to describe the chief magician committing kidney theft via psychosurgery, as well as opening his own abdomen with a sharp stone. As he's describing the chief magician as wearing his 18th century naval tailcoat, Crossley dramatically faints into his meal. He says he suffers from migraines and asks to have a lie down. Sorry to interrupt, Brother Zachariah, but he says specifically that he suffers from migraines. 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 I suffer from migraines. <laughs> migraines. This is a very important point. Yeah, it's, right. a, it's an early, early example of the migraine two movement. Uh, I <laughs> I remember the migraine epidemic of the 1970s. I was there. He suffers from migraines and asks to have a lie down. Rachel offers the sofa, but Anthony offers to put him upstairs in the spare room, just as planned. <laughs> <laughs> they help Crossley upstairs, who is next seen shirtless <laughs> and spying on Rachel from the upstairs window. <laughs> God, he's creepy. Anthony goes back to dicking around in a sound studio and chain smoking, as one does. Rachel comes back in and talks about how much she dislikes Crossley. 
She has the overall attitude you might expect from someone whose sexual needs are being attended to by a prog rock John Hurt. Anthony goes to wish Crossley goodnight as Rachel instructed and finds him sitting nude on the bed. But Crossley still invites him in anyways. Crossley resumes his story about the aboriginal magician who slit his belly with a sharp stone and pulled open his skin in order to summon the reins. I suppose he could teach Toto a thing or two. Oh boy. He also informs Anthony that this magician taught him the terror shout, which he perfected over 18 years, which he can now use to kill instantly. Anthony's expression of skepticism is met with a challenge to his imagination. His failure there with Crossley implies as being linked to Anthony's failure at music. Crossley then shows off his abdominal scar and mimes tearing open his own skin. Anthony exits after asking Crossley to leave again in the most circumspect and English way possible. So, no, I was going to say it's like just so insufferably. There's anything you need before you leave. I mean, like, if this was an American, like, dude, just get the fuck out. Get out of my house. Go. Like, no, in, to- in England, this is a declaration of absolute <laughs> fucking war. <laughs> Pardon me, sir, but would you, you please? <laughs> I'm not leaving. So there's nothing I need. Perhaps a biscuit. Perhaps I could fetch you another cup of tea before you go and reach the bus, which you will no doubt be wanting, sir. <laughs> I won't need anything because I'm not planning to leave. So you don't need to get me tea or any or a biscuit or anything. I'm, I'm going to have my nice little lie down here. It's like a courtesy feedback loop. That was the vibe I was getting. <laughs> <laughs> and in the 1970s, this would have been seen as an absolute abrogation of all social responsibility. British, yes. Your manners are only second to the Canadians. We own them too. A wholly owned subsidiary of the United Kingdom. Anthony is shaken and goes downstairs to have a little tantrum in the yard. He knocks his bike over and fails at splitting some firewood. The chunk of wood flies off the stump and smashes one of his windows. Note, if you're pissed off, handling an axe properly isn't the brightest idea. He brings in a basket of wood to build a fire across from a couch where a book on Stalin is conspicuously placed. And this is our art director working (laughs) his creative choices. Right. Crossley, (laughs) now having dressed makes a show of leaving. And Anthony, in what he probably believes in his polite little English heart is the most cutting piece of sarcasm, tells Crossley he would very much like to hear his shout. Crossley declares he is going out, but keeps Anthony on the hook by inviting him to follow. (laughs) So I I had a question about this. As he's following him out the door, Anthony takes this little figurine from over the door. I don't know what that figurine is. I don't know why he takes it. I don't even know what it's doing there. Like, does, did anybody recognize it? Uh, I didn't even know. Oh, well, yeah, that's just a standard thing. We have figurines over all our doors. It doesn't bear any further scrutiny. Don't worry about it. Are they of the? Uh, are they of the? Are they of the Queen or? <laughs> oh, they're of the Queen. Various members of the royal family, figures from history, Daleks. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> Exterminate! Exterminate! All right. <laughs> Jesus. Is it Jesus? Is it Jesus? Uh, it might have been Jesus, actually. Yeah, I, I just want to point out one of the things that I actually got a kick out of about this is how, um, like, expertly, uh, Crossley basically just uses people's polite inclinations against them. Like, he weaponizes their intent to be polite and kind to people. But again, yeah. this is a, a, something we can dive into more later. 
He wouldn't last in New York, but he might do well in the South. New New York doesn't last well in New York. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You're just walking down the street in New York and a poodle is shoved off a fifth floor window and hits you in the head. As Dennis Leary said, from then on, you're known as the Poodle Man. As Anthony and Crossley walk the dog to the shore, Crossley informs him that if he shouted now, Anthony and his wife would die, as would anyone or anything that heard him. He also, it's like the using of the title of the movie in the movie dialogue, The Shout, which is very polite considering it's a movie called The Shout. There's very little actual I mean, shouting. right from the start, we've been waiting for some shouting. We've yes, been exactly. <laughs> he says that he can do it out on the dunes in the early morning when nobody was about and that Anthony should bring some wax to stop up his ears. Anthony still expressed skepticism, Pah! but he's heard some sounds because he's a musician and crossley tells him that the shout will kill him from the looks of john hurt a stiff breeze would probably kill him the stiff breeze is coming shortly (laughs) the stiff breeze that's his next movie crossley awakens anthony the next morning by watching him and rachel sleep crossley sets out on a brisk pace to the dunes Anthony, physically unfit, follows with some difficulty. John Hurt never plays the most robust of physical specimens. Muscles like tissue paper, bones like powdered milk, to quote Andy Slack. Is I mean, that- seeing this guy <laughs> run is quite the spectacle. I mean, seeing John Hurt attempt any kind of physical activity at all is something of a spectacle. He deserves a medal when he successfully raises a crumpet to his lips. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, I, I got many a flashback to Hebrew school and learning the chicken dance when I watched him run. Yeah, so Brother John Zachariah Hurt. knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. John Hurt, Hebrew guys. chicken dances his way up the dunes like yes. you do. <laughs> this is a guy whose definition of heavy exercise is smoking two packs. <laughs> Although we do I see smoked, him. I, I had very good exercise. I smoked two, twenty, forty cigarettes in the same city. I guess the most uh, unbelievable thing we see him do is raise a cricket bat in this movie. So, oh, this is David Lynch's favorite actor, by the way. This is like literally his favorite actor of his life. John Hurt. Why? John Hurt. Yep. He says, this <laughs> He's is a great actor. actor. David uh, Lynch. Yeah, that's just, uh, yeah. He loves actors who look like they're about to dissolve into primordial goo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Anthony sees Crossley playing with objects from his pocket. First, a pointing bone. <laughs> no, not that one. The bone, the then, bone, the bone. <laughs> Rachel's shoe buckle. He stops up his ears, then crossly admonishes him to put his fingers in his ears when he wants him to stop, not before he begins. The shout is delivered with extreme dramatic physicality as well as intense eye contact. Its sound is enhanced by the peak of 1970s audio technology. A nearby shepherd boy and his sheep are all struck dead. Anthony is knocked off his feet and rolls down the dune. This is probably a stuntman. If the real John Hurt had done this stunt, he would probably have collapsed into a pile of ancient broomsticks and cigarette ends. Let me pause here to remind you, unreliable narrator, folks. You were getting sucked into the story, weren't you? That is way more of Alan Bates's oral cavity than I ever want to see in my life. <laughs> that guy, like, you could count his fucking fillings. I know. And oh, it, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. It pauses. It lingers there for quite a while too. And they cross cut to him giving you extensive eye contact. It takes time. (laughs) It's like, seriously, what I expect your last sight is if a zombie comes at your face. I mean, this is a seriously intense moment. I mean, just having an actor yell directly at the camera and stare down the barrel of the lens at you. You don't really see that. This is the sort of thing that would be handled with special effects nowadays. But no, they just said, listen, guy, you're going to stand there we're going to film you do something incredible and he just does and and yeah and we're just going to like stick the camera down your throat like it's a medical examination (laughs) (laughs) and and to be serious the the sound is quite horrible and is quite intense like i mean they 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 peg those needles on that vu meter Brother Andy admonished us to, to turn the volume down. And I, I was glad I took his advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, an, this is important. While laying dazed on the beach, Anthony randomly picks up a stone. Suddenly, he has what could only be described as cobbler thoughts. And not of the dessert, but of fixing shoes. Cobblery. Cobblery. The Cobblery. thoughts and desires and actions of a cobbler. A, yes. rem- a maker and repairer of shoe-related items. Not what? a maker of shoes. That would be a cordwainer, a cobbler. One who repairs shoes. One who nails soles to shoes. Is there some kind of metaphor of shoes, soles, mysticism? Ah, you see? Yeah, see, it's all coming together. Shoes, mysticism, shoes, shoes, shoes have feet, souls. Feet, yeah, souls, feet, shoes. Rounding. Uh, I feel, I feel like I'm Nicolas Cage from uh, National Treasures with his. Guys, I think all of you are <laughs> suffering from foot in mouth disease here. Stop. No, stop. No, no boo. Uh, That's ridiculous. Can we give him the boots? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, there was no you, sneaking around that one. One week's probation for both of you brothers. <laughs> can you throw us to commercial, please? <laughs> All right, hang on, hang on. Um, <clears throat> at which point I must stress that the filth and grime of celluloid soap scum collects once more in the drainage receptacle of brotherly debating. We must once more pause in order to scrape our fleshy flanks clean. That was a visual Jesus. image. Jesus yeah, Christ. that's right. I prepared that shit. I had that shit ready to go. We return again clad only in bathrobes and nothing else as we prepare ourselves for act three of The Shout. Which I will now present to you all. <coughs> For yourself, Brother Andy, I'm still wearing my fez. It must have the fez. Well, obviously, obviously, you're all wearing fezes. That doesn't even need to be said. We're all wearing fezes, fez even while bath- entirely nude. Fezes, fezes in bathrobes. Bath I don't close mine. <laughs> well, I wear an extra not- medium. 
nor should you close it. We enjoy each other's bodies. That's an entirely part of the point of the Cinemania Society. Anyway, moving on. Act three. From this point on, Crossley has made himself very much at home. Anthony is practically bedridden due to the effects of the shout, the shout, the shout. And so Rachel is free for a little quiet domestic bliss. She has changed her opinion of their guest and is getting very comfortable around him. Very comfortable. Lots of slow lingering looks over shared cups of tea. Crossley even repairs Rachel's bike, showing a command of basic simple machinery that completely eluded poor John Hurt. Assuming, English flirt. Assuming <laughs> yeah, he's a genius when it comes to sound gear and electronics, but a failure when it comes to basic mechanics. We switch back to the cricket match in progress. Crossley is still narrating. He takes that pointed bone from before out and starts whittling at it with a penknife. It is implied that he is in some way affecting the bowler, putting the man off his stride. Back within the story, and Crossley is looking around Anthony's studio again. He has a sensual need to touch things and experience them with his hands. He makes a point of very slightly adjusting the position of objects, making the space his own in some way. By the time Anthony is starting to feel capable of leaving bed, Rachel and Crossley are sharing a joke over tea in the garden. He is now looking down on them, the way Crossley had been watching before. Their roles have reversed. John looks very, oh, what's the word, wounded by the situation in some way. Anthony goes for a walk, and Crossley gives him a look which says it all. It's that, I'm going to have sex with your wife, matey, look, which I'm sure we all know so well. <laughs> as soon as Anthony leaves, Crossley has sex with his wife. And Rachel is totally into him at this point. It's probably the best sex she's had since her husband decided to devote an entire room of their house to his prog rock odyssey. I mean, this is also a laugh since John Hurt did play Caligula a few years before. Evidently, his own psychotic kinky days are behind him. Oh, well, Alan Bates is there to fill that void. Right, literally. Anthony, yeah, <laughs> Anthony had left in order to do some shopping and get Rachel's shoe repaired. Now, remember that buckle. It's important. The cobbler mentions having a funny turn at the time of the shout. <laughs> happening. And from the description, it's clear that when Anthony was in contact with that random stone, the cobbler felt an agonizing sense of being turned inside out. Anthony has retained some of the cobblering knowledge. Things have started to reach breaking point when suddenly everything changes. It seems like Crossley has just decided to up and leave and everything is going to be normal again. Cut back to the cricket match. The patients are getting overexcited and are yelling at the game. Crossley is becoming visibly agitated and finding it hard to keep himself together. I just want to note that the whole mm. time in this cricket game, he's in a tiny cabin with yes. Tim Curry, carving yes. a bone very visibly. Tim Curry carving. says nothing. No, Doesn't he's just, notice. He... He's just, so I'm, I'm taking this to mean that he is a good, proper Britishman and paying complete attention to the cricket game. I or... don't think you're really paying attention to just how absorbing the game of cricket really is. I mean, if you're scoring a cricket match, you've got no 
no room in your brain space to look at what the guy next to you is doing. He could be carving a bone. He could be carving the face of a person. You'd have no be, way of knowing. He's stabbing or you in the arm. Just nope, nope, not paying attention. I gotta, I gotta score this sucker. Yeah. Or maybe he just knows and has enough street sense that when a man is rambling at you about some weird story holding a knife and a sharp stick, then maybe you should just shut your mouth, nod, and just pretend, stare in front of you like we all do on the subway. A very British approach to knife-based rambling, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Okay. I just wanted to to clarify for everyone the cultural context in which this is occurring, because otherwise it might seem a little weird. Back in the story, we see that Crossley has left the house chucked away the buckle the dog follows him out never to appear again and in so doing knocks over a bottle of milk the camera lingers on this so it's probably the art director's allegory to something sexual probably Uh, it was so obviously that the dog was walking in front of it and someone behind him pushed over the bottle of milk (laughs) hold everything guys that dog just knocked over a bottle of milk that's proper artistic that is it's (laughs) Linger on that. Linger on that. Let should, it should, we, should we hang on that, Governor? Should, should we just like hold on? Zoom in. Zoom in on the milk. Let it linger. Right, right, Let it right. spread. Yeah. yeah. No, I thought he's, I thought they did a zoom on it, but they didn't. It just they just let it linger. As yeah, no. No, 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 zoom. no, zoom. Down, down, zoom. Down, zoom. Down, zoom. Just linger. Linger. This, you got to linger film, on the milk. This film is full of really random freeze frames before they fade to the next cut. Like, it, I, it's completely inexplicable. I mean, um, the freeze frame is probably a new invention at the time. They just really wanted to get their money's worth. <laughs> no, I'm just picturing uh, something very Herzogian. If Herzog is directing this, I wanted to linger on the milk. Uh, this is sexual allegory. I want to make sure that you see this here. Look at the milk. Look at the way that the milk spreads. Milk is a complicated business. Anyway, I, hey, um, I, I love just the fact that the, even the dog betrays John Hurt. Yes. <laughs> yeah, even, John he, Hurt. even his beloved, like, you know, he golden retriever. He cannot even make like, a dog dude. stick with him. He, even a dog. <laughs> he inspires yeah, no loyalty from anyone or anything. Yeah, Crossley rips off everything out of this guy's life, including his fucking dog. Like, just the dog's like, <laughs> <laughs> it just wanders off. Oh, boy, we're going for walkies. I think the dog is just waiting for the first opportunity to jump that ship. It's not often that the dog is afraid of outliving the master, let's just say. (laughs) Anyway, Crossley's tossing away the buckle has lifted his enchantment over Rachel. We're lured into a sense of security, you might say. Anthony can get back to his studio and life can go on. Anthony is trying to use all his sound engineering hardware in an attempt to recreate Crossley's shout. But seeing as John Hurt has already given the scream of his life's performance in another movie that year, he's doomed to failure. Out of nowhere, Crossley returns. Suddenly, he's back in the kitchen, and Rachel is literally kneeling at his side, kissing his hand. The enchantment is back on. The sense of security, it was false. Betrayer! Crossley and Anthony have a tense English confrontation. Anthony tells Crossley he should stop being so unreasonable. Crossley tells Anthony to go away. It's a bloodbath. Stirring stuff. God's sake. 
Struck by an idea, Anthony heads to the beach. He's looking for Crossley's special stone. Apparently, everyone in the village is living in such a state of moral starvation that their souls have all retreated to the seaside. Finding the precise stone, he uses the last of his stolen cobbler knowledge and hits it with a shoe. The stone breaks apart, as presumably does Crossley's soul. Is that what the hell was going on? That's exactly what the hell was going on. Try and keep up. Uh, I mean, yes, that's what was that was going on. Crossley is stricken, and outside the police have arrived. They're looking for some nutter that killed his children. Crossley shouts one of the coppers to death, but is taken into custody. Apparently, the shout is uh, no defense against an organized police force with cars and an actual judicial system behind them. Anyway. By now, it's raining at the cricket match. The patients have collectively lost their shit by now. The match is in chaos. Crossley is getting more and more agitated, and poor Graves realizes that he's in a tiny wooden box with a raving, knife-wielding lunatic. He manages to crawl out of the window as the chief tries to calm things down. Too late. Crossley lets out the shout. One last time. As there's a lightning storm on, there's some deliberate confusion as to whether the explosion, flames, and subsequent deaths were due to the lightning striking the scoring box or by Crossley's shout. But either way, this is how those bodies ended up being laid out at the beginning of the film. Rachel finds Crossley's body and retrieves something from around the neck. It is the buckle. At long last, she is free. Oh my God, that's what that was. That made absolutely no damn sense. He had the buckle the entire time. Uh, this, this movie made so little sense to me. I just... All right, Brother Zachariah. Look, look, it's a simple story, easily told. Uh, boy meets boy and girl. Boy curses girl. Girl rejects boy who challenges other boy who shouts at boy until he has to go straight to bed and think about what he's done. Boy enters into pseudo-masochistic tryst with girl while boy seeks soul starvation stone and strikes it squarely with shoe, shattering stone and sending soul into screaming, stark, raving stupor. And also it's all lies. I don't see how we could have put it any more simply than that. I mean, come on. Uh, that it's a tale as old as time, Randy. The one thing that I really dislike about this film is for a film that is presented to us in the narrative device of a cricket match, I have to ask you, Brother Andy, is this film cricket? Well, I have to say it's a lot of things, but the one thing it actually is quite accurately is cricket. That that pretty much is a cricket match, yes. Uh, You're saying the wickets are not sticky. It is not, in fact, a sticky wicket. It is indeed cricket. It is cricket. It not is sticky cricket, wicket. no sticky wicket. The wicket is not sticky. It is cricket. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yes. got it. Did, it the bees have, did the bees have something to do with the wicket being sticky? The bees have nothing to do with cricket. How would, how would bees even influence a cricket match? They can't lift a cricket bat, even if they all work together with their little legs. I don't even... Think upon the cricket bat with their little wings fluffing in the wind, trying to move the cricket bat around. That I don't possible. even understand how John Hurt can influence a cricket match, let alone no, a that- bee. 
Now that, that's fair enough. The that, that does challenge strike, belief. Strike him with a cricket ball. It'd be like watching a bad game of Jenga go wrong. <laughs> so the now the ending of this film, like, well, not not the very ending where she finds the bodies and so forth, but like where the lightning strikes and there's confusion and mass chaos. It's not dramatic so much as it's basically a Monty Python sketch, right? Yep. You have a little cabin on wheels being pushed by a naked man wearing nothing but a jockstrap and cow shite, just pushing it along while Tim Curry desperately tries to crawl out the window and another man dances around chanting random lines from the Tempest and suddenly it's on fire and everybody's on, you know, exploded. Yeah, yeah. And then the big, match. and then the big foot of, <laughs> and then the big foot of God comes down and bap. I basically, <laughs> basically. Then the camera pans over and there's John Cleese behind a desk and he says, "And now for something completely different." Yeah, right, which, it's, uh, it's practically a documentary at this point. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Well, no, no, I'm actually saying that that felt like the most aesthetically cohesive part of the movie. <laughs> Well, yes, because they just filmed an actual cricket match and uh, just went with what went on and this was built just, a film around that. This was just Britain in the 1970s. 1970s is Britain here. Now, I was going to say, Tim Curry is like literally cr- trying to crawl out the window, like, get me out of this film. <laughs> he's just like... Tim Curry has just decided he's going to... Tim Curry has decided he's going to escape from this mortal realm that's been corrupted by capitalism and go to the one place where he can play cricket according to communistic principles. Space! (laughs) The one place where cricket hasn't been corrupted by capitalists. (laughs) He's just had enough of the film. He's like, nope, 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 nope. Time for a luxury gay space communism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all I right, think all right, it's I think it's interesting that out of this movie and you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show, this is the weirder of the two films. And now I feel we are truly ready to render judgment on the shout. This film is one that I saw as a very young man on television back in oh it was a while ago and i was young enough that i took it as at face value i didn't question the underlying themes that were going on the problematic messages that were happening in there i just took it for what it was i believed everything i was told as being the literal truth of what i saw on screen and for that reason i really liked it it influenced me in a big way i later found out that's probably not a good idea i lost at least one <laughs> promising lover by showing them this film and telling and it was awesome and they didn't <laughs> share that that appreciation this film has therefore wounded me sexually as well as in many other different ways but i still find myself drawn to it i can't help but be captivated by the charisma by the seduction of alan bates and what's going on in front of us that's what i have to say about it but to get a further view which Obviously, I feel will agree with everything I said. Let's turn to our brothers one at a time. And so, Brother Zachariah, what say you about this film? I hate it. This, uh-huh. one, this movie was so boring. It just It drove me to almost heroic levels to continue watching this film. If I was not watching it for our conclave, 
I would have turned it off before the cricket match. I, it was what eight, how many minutes before it even got to the story? I forget, but it was too long. It was rambling and incoherent and I could not understand the dialogue for most of it until, and until this conclave, I still was missing big pieces of what actually happened in the film. Okay, well, thank you for your wrong opinions, Brother Zachariah. Anytime. Uh, Brother Daniel, have you anything to add? Uh, yes. So um, I first saw this movie, I'm going way back to like yesterday. Um, that was the first time I saw this movie and it does not age well. Uh, let's just put it that way. I get that it is intended to be a deep, mystical, psychosexual drama, but the uh, rampant misogyny of the uh, lack of agency of the woman in this classic trope of, well, any, any mysterious stranger blowing by has cast a spell on her and she cannot help herself but fall into his arms as he fingers her buckle. Yeah, that was I, that was obviously intentional in this film. Um, things like that just uh, do not do not hold up to uh, let's say modern uh, modern perspectives on such things. Um, it is slow. Uh, I don't have quite Brother Zachariah's um, reaction to the slowness of the film. I always like stories within stories, um, but I think what we really saw is that there's a significant disconnect between what the dialogue of the film is trying to achieve, cutting to these nonsensical creative capital C choices, capital C made by, I, I think I'm with brother uh, Ethan on this, probably by the artistic director, capital A, capital D, T, M, um, thinking, oh, it would be really significant to linger on this bottle of milk that was knocked over by the dog, or um, here's a peacock, here's another peacock, and yet here's another peacock. Here's an old man who has fallen over in his chair, seemingly dead. Oh, no, he's not dead. He's just getting back up by the madness tree. It's just all of these really random choices, um, I think don't help the film in any way, shape or form. Uh, I already know how I am going to judge this film. However, uh, I, will, I will hold that uh, until such time. I, I will allow myself to have an open mind as we continue the style. Yes, well, thank you for your open mind and many wrong thoughts, Brother Daniel. <laughs> uh, I was a, a, a young person when this film first influenced me. Let's turn to another young person. Brother Andre, have you yeah. anything to add to this discussion? I thought I was watching like a plot portion on the hub, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I... Again, kind of the same thing I said for Wild Zero. It's just something you can kind of turn your brain off and just revel in the weirdness. And I've I warned absolutely... you about making me Google your references before. You oh no! <laughs> um, one thing I definitely did kind of notice was again those lingering shots and those that certain type of symbolism that felt not forced but just kind of there the impression that it gave me was like certain passages in a book like you know might talk about a certain object for extended periods of time to using more descriptive words and telling stories but obviously in uh film it's a little bit more difficult to convey that so that's kind of the the vibe i got from those particular moments 
So you're saying that Jerzy Skolomowski directs films the way that George R. R. Martin writes books? Yeah. <laughs> In layman's terms. <laughs> so for me, I always think of this as the, uh, the Dickens syndrome. So um, mm. specifically, there's if anyone's been forced to read A Tale of Two Cities in, uh, in high school, right? Yeah, I so, bullet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like any of us read it by choice. Yeah. <laughs> right. So there's a whole, there's, so they run away to, um, to uh, England for a little while to escape the, uh, the French Revolution and getting their heads chopped off. And then they get to this house that they're just hiding out in. It's an old house. It's got lots of wonderful antiques. And in particular, there is a rocking chair. And then Dickens spends an entire chapter describing yep. the rocking chair. Yeah, Just yep, the yep, rocking yep. chair and all the stories Why? about it. As if it is symbolism there's... and not that he is getting paid by the word. Yeah, because all, <laughs> all we see then is just a 10-minute shot of that rocking chair slowly, slowly <laughs> tracking in. <laughs> All right, all right. I think we've had enough of the wrong opinions of Brother Andre. Brother Ethan, I know you're going to be with me on this. I know that you, of all the brothers, are going to support me on this. You, surely, you must feel that there's something good to be said about this movie. Please proceed to present your correct opinions to these peons. Yes, certainly, Brother Andy. Um, I do have to say, in all seriousness, actually, I really enjoyed this film. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about it after, uh, and I went back and rewatched it. Um, I, I talked it up to a number of different people, you know, folks that I knew who would enjoy it. Um, it is dated. Uh, I mean, it's very late 70s. Everybody's dressed in it. I kept expecting James Burke to come out from behind the corner and talk to us about the connections um, that this... Uh, this particular device would have to something else or introduce uh, some reenactment. Um, but beyond that, like I thought it was deep. Um, I thought some of the artistic choices the director made were a little ham-handed, but I really liked all the performances. Um, uh, in particular, it, I, I thought that, um, it, I, because I also read the short story afterward, the one that was from which this was adapted. Um, and I wanna say that uh, I really feel like that both the film and the short story pull off a trope that gets attributed to H.P. Lovecraft. Um, and it kind of raised a question in my mind. I think um, both Graves and Skolomowski pull off the trope very elegantly. Um, and so much so that I'm tempted to consider that Graves pioneered this trope, which is of the unreliable narrator relating a fantastical story in an asylum after which he dies, uh, which is kind of like everybody attributes that to H.P. Lovecraft. But um, because the, the short story from which this film was adapted was published in The New Yorker, uh, when it when it first came out in 1924, I, I suspect that Lovecraft read it because he was a raving Anglophile, was influenced by it, and like so many other hack authors who wrote for the pulps, tried to copy it. But I don't know that for sure. It might be the other way around. Maybe Lovecraft influenced Graves. I'll leave that to someone more obsessive than I am to check publication dates, cross-reference content, and then leave us an angry blog post about why I'm absolutely wrong. I find uh, it hard so, to believe that there is anyone more <laughs> obsessive than you, brother. No, no, no. I, I unfortunately have to to flex the in English degree. Uh, no. You can take you can take this at no. least back to Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley Wollstonecraft. Um, the whole of the um, uh, Frankenstein or Meth or, or Promethean story that she wrote is basically the same trope of. A uh, story within a story, and then the storyteller uh, being unreliable unre passes. The uh, 19th century epistolary you're referring to, of course. Yes, uh, sometimes it's epistolic, uh, sometimes not. Uh, Mary Shelley's is definitely Poe, kind of goes back and forth. Um, 
So I think he can go back at least that far to some of the Gothic stuff that does the same thing. You know, not not a will actually, but just just to call out like this is a this mm. is an old old trope, and it's wonderful to see. This is actually the thing that where I disagree with Brother Zachariah. I love this sort of thing. Um, my issues had more to do with the, um, as you say, questionable art art director choices in the cinematography. Look at the well, big brain arm, Daniel. You a spot motherfucker. You right. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I just want to point out that I feel like this is this film is a is an oft overlooked Lovecraftian film. It's really this hmm. film and this story both by my. It's definition. definitely weird, and it definitely hmm. stays with you, even whether it's good or not. It's definitely odd. I will yeah, give you no, that. That was the thing. It 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 has it has a linger effect. Like it really like it really stuck with me. It has this building sort of creeping tension and horror that kind of builds throughout the whole picture as you watch this guy psychologically dominate these people throughout the whole picture. And that's the thing really that sells it more than me and really how Alan Bates gives an absolutely commanding performance of a sociopathic narcissist. I mean, maybe he was one, I don't know, but but like if you read the psychological profiles of these people and as, as somebody who who has studied clinical psychology to a certain point. I mean, more so than I think the average person has. I mean, I did, did, did work in, in a, a psychology clinic for a couple of years. Though I don't have a degree. I just want to say this straight out. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I don't have a degree or a license to practice. I've just happened to be around a lot of psychology in practice and having and have had some academic study on it. But I can, you know, he he effectively weaponizes his charisma in a way that allows him to ensnare people into believing his grandiose and absurd claims. Um, and thus psychologically dominate them, get them under his power. Um, and you can see this throughout the picture. Like you can, you can see this from the minute Graves meets Crossley, like gets him right under him, uses these hypnotic tones in his eyes in a very, very sort of mesmeric way. Um, in the story that he's telling later, you can see him make a conspicuous choice to drink water instead of wine. Like every time he's offered wine, he, he turns it down. And this can be seen as like gaslighting because, um, you know, basically like, the people who have invited him into their home and against whom he is weaponizing their politeness and manners, he can get them to doubt their own sanity because he's not drinking and they are. So therefore, why would this guy make up this bullshit story that he tells people? So from a, from a perspective of somebody who enjoys looking at and analyzing psychology and, and uh, pathological psychology, like this, this was fucking amazing. Like I really enjoyed studying that part of it. I want to point out something about the unreliable narrator, though. Um, I think that a lot of this can be like taken back to like Plato's writing of, you know, the kind of straw man argument. Since he is the unreliable narrator, that means he does choose whether the his opponents in the story succumb to him or not. So, yes, he is like making these moves and stuff, but how effective they are, he is telling us how effective he is. It's like when somebody, I don't know, somebody very charismatic starts telling you a story about how they're charismatic they are that they're able to do these things. He's telling a story about how he's incredibly charismatic and then he messed it up and got arrested. Yeah, at the very end, but you know, it's at the at the end you kind of have to segue back into reality. He's actually telling a cautionary tale. Like he, it seems like that's what he's tying to. Like usually, that's what these are. It's like it's a cautionary tale of almost like either messing with powers that you shouldn't, or 
uh, disrespecting powers that you shouldn't, like disbelieving mm. in them. And it's, it seems like he kind of wavers between one or the other. But I do agree with you, Brother Zachariah, that like for me, what undermined the esoteric nature of this, the mystical nature of this, besides just the extremely dated and, and racist uh, uh, approach to it, was the fact that it's an unreliable narrator. So like that undermines us being able to approach this as a, is it really magic? Is it not magic, right? Um, that that aspect of it felt uh, very ham-handed. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of goes to the point, though. You know, is that yes, he is an unreliable narrator, but at the same time, like that's what makes it sort of meta, is because the actor Alan Bates is playing this role in this particular way, and yes, it makes the audience have to continually remind themselves that oh, this is a story being told by a lunatic in an asylum, but at the same time, his performance is so so good and so dominating that you get lost in the story and you're like oh fuck wait this isn't supposed this isn't real this is a story I- i'm going to tell you five things three of which are lies and like oh fuck right yeah 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 so like he effectively trolls both his victims in screen and in the audience that's the yeah. thing that i found really phenomenal about this film I yeah guess, yeah yeah i guess the, that's the... where it falls apart for me because i never forgot it was a guy telling a story yeah i guess so where i'm at is that the the psychological manipulation like that drama worked for me from but the the super potential supernatural elements for me really fell apart like you know why did he grab that figurine off the door we have mm. no idea you know like all that sort of stuff just totally fell apart for me well that's the supernatural elements are are the thing that he uses to psychologically dominate people i mean that's that's kind of the point if you get people to believe the big lie then they're under your power you know, so his whole thing, like at the end, you've got Tim Curry's character as Robert Graves, um, basically they're like, but you still have the shout, you still have the shout. And, but he's like, as he's getting all psyched up to begin shouting and, and, and Curry crawls out the window as the thing's being pushed away, you don't know whether or not the lightning strikes and blows it up or whether he kills people with the shout. There's, there's ambiguity, there's deliberate ambiguity there. You know, so like it leaves you as the audience member going, does this guy really have this mystical power? And it looks like he might, you know, like she had the buckle, she talked off the end, or was this just a lightning strike? What the fuck is going on here? I right. it's kind of right. up to me to determine. Which would think, have worked um, better if the shout at the sound, the, the audio of the shout and the audio of the lightning bolt hadn't been offset by about a second and a half. That's a good point. <laughs> That's what I mean. I mean they, like, they did what they the could te- with, the, yeah. with the audio right, with the, of the day, clearly. Right. Well, not just that, but with the like, what? five million pound budget or something stupidly low like that that they had no yeah, no that they, wasn't they, low budget for the time though i want to point that out if this was done oh, in yeah. american modern dollars that'd be a 30 million dollar picture so like yeah but they, they, had to, they had to ship some aboriginal guy to the devonshire dunes just for one shot of walking towards a camera and that probably cost a lot in 1970s oh yeah a lot more <laughs> than paying uh paying the actors <laughs> i mean i i assume they I think ambiguity is a big word here. This whole film is laden with ambiguity. Is it real? Is it not real? Is it a story just randomly told by a guy, Kaiser sozying his way through a conversation by looking at the people around him and making it up as he goes? Or is it an actual retelling of how someone had his soul split apart and became fundamentally unstable because of it? We don't know, and those questions are ones which ultimately won't go answered. We've now had everybody's opinion on what they think of the film each of you in your own way have betrayed me uniquely your your opinions have been daggers in my heart i want you to know each sharper than the last and cutting more deeper than ever but 
I will forever love this film, regardless of your wrong opinions. Now, however, we have to move on to the subject of judging. Is this film worthy of being elevated into being permitted to public view, or is it cinemaniac and must be condemned forever? I must have a vote from each of you. I will go to you one by one. Brother Zachariah, is this film innocent or guilty? Is this the real world or is this just fantasy? I don't care because it's guilty. Very well. Brother Daniel, is this film innocent or guilty? I believe this film is not intentionally guilty, except that it was infiltrated by a very guilty artistic director, and therefore it is guilty. Very well. Brother Andre, my youngest brother, one most closest to my heart. Is this film innocent or guilty? 100% guilty. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have words later, you Gen Z tit. (laughs) And Brother Ethan, is this film innocent or guilty? I do have to say, Brother Andy, that I am tempted to exonerate this film and allow it to be weighed down by the four votes, uh, for the four opposing (laughs) votes. However... Uh, because of all the looks that you were giving me, um, I suspect that uh, you'll be having words with me in the parking lot if I vote opposite my belief. I will be forced to say that it is guilty. And as for my vote, actually, I do have to vote it guilty because this film gave me cinemania itself. <laughs> this film hit me as a young man and filled me with crazy ideas that I didn't know how to question and wasn't able to properly process because of my youth and immaturity. This film probably influenced me in a way that it shouldn't have done. And is that not what we're here to try to prevent and save people from? Yes, I'm afraid I must judge this film, love it though I do, as being guilty of cinemania. Well said. Oh, Brother Ethan, you mentioned a... a, You mentioned a guest would be... It's in the guest Shut up! Shut Go away, you ancient donut! Shall I get the sherry? A guest would be joining us. I have a special guest I shall be wheeling out or asking Brother Methuselah to wheel out. We've got a... He's at the door! He's been knocking at the door! Let me get the door, that being my title and all. Don't worry, I'll get it. The odds of you being struck by lightning a second time is impossible to fathom. Get up there. All right, but I'll be talking to human resources. Off I go. <laughs> Brethren, I would like you to welcome to our conclave, Alex. Alex goes by Trash Shaman. Please introduce yourself to the conclave, Alex. Hi, Brother Ethan, and hi to all of the brothers, and thank you for having me in your wonderful podcast. I'm what you could consider an expert in the occult matters, mainly as a user end of the product. And I chose that moniker because in my pursuit of pooky knowledge, I have to deal with a lot of human garbage. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, when Brother Ethan showed me this movie, I was all fine and dandy. I was looking at the occult elements and all of that. And then I realized that the villain of the movie, it was ringing all of my alarms. It reminded me of a lot of people and a lot of uh, organizations that uh, prey on the unwary, mainly because we are all seeking uh, for answers and we are usually easily fascinated by these types. So that would be me. 
I certainly was fascinated by this figure as a as a young fellow. Do you mean the the, the movie's villain? Yes, yes, I was yeah. very fascinated by him. I was taken in. As I had mentioned during the judgment section, I really felt that this actor gave a commanding performance of a sociopathic narcissist, you know, someone who really seeks to use his charisma in a way that allows him to, to bring them under his power. And you had had some thoughts and some feelings about how that character had been portrayed. And can you tell us more about why he was raising some red flags for you? Yes, uh, you see, mystical imposters or just con artists they will approach you in a methodology that it repeats itself, usually has four steps. And the progression in the movie, from the moment Crossley meets the husband till the very end, uh, you can see those steps so clearly, I thought I was looking at a documentary. And as a matter of fact, I refused for a moment to believe that the film had any possibility that maybe it was not a supernatural film, until Brother Ethan told me, look, this is an unreliable narrator. It might just as well be a loony seeking attention and not an actual, call it sorcerer or whatever, right? And uh, until he pointed that out, I was so engrossed by this character that I refused to see anything else. And then I realized, could it be possible that just a simple movie villain managed to convince me that, no, no, this movie is exactly and precisely about the supernatural and there cannot be no other interpretation. And then I realized it is. And that reminded me, because it hit home, the place I live, which I'd rather leave it out, is uh, very popular due to destructive cults. Usually it, the same pattern of signing off your real estate to a cult leader and then going either to suicide or uh, being engaged through tiring practices until a heart failure happens. In this movie, if I may bore you to death, <laughs> uh, as I was saying, there's there four steps to the con artist of the mystical variety. The first is the claims of a cosmopolitan background. This guy approaches you with a very mannered way uh, until you assume that since uh, the man has uh, traveled all around the world, must have uh, experienced a lot of things. It must, it must be of an open mentality. And probably since he doesn't look a complete idiot, has something interesting to say. And that you see it in the movie precisely when he, when he starts talking about Australia and his uh, travels and uses exactly that, gauge the audience. Uh, sorry, not actually the audience, the, the one that's watching the movie, but the relationship between the husband and the wife. Because first, he fascinates. Then he introduces escalating tales that, of course, you cannot immediately verify. The practice of aborting the children. I'm not very sure if that is a real thing in the Aboriginal culture of Australia, but it manages to shock the wife and puts a wedge between them. And then it goes straight into the third phase where this guy is giving uh, suggestions that there is maybe a supernatural element, things that the, that the husband would like to participate in. But at the same time, he's pushing him away from the wife. Like, look, she's hysterical. She's a you know, stereotypical bad woman. You can, you can see this guy's a clear misogynist and a manipulator at that. And the scene where he demonstrates the shout, if you notice, he puts him through a lot of physical exertion. He makes him walk around uh, until he drops or rolls down a dune. As the, uh, as the viewer, you might think, no, the shout actually happened. It is also another red flag. The cults usually uh, put their initiates, or rather their victims, through strenuous physical activity. Sometimes I've, uh, locally here, I've heard the practice of making you recite the alphabet backwards, on and on and on and on, on an empty stomach. Horrible stuff. <laughs> And 
when uh, after he demonstrated the, the shout, you can see that he cuts communication with the husband, approaches the wife, which, is, which has been left vulnerable, not because she's a woman, but because she has the lack of support that her husband is. You can also see in the movie that apparently she's not as sociable as the husband. She has nowhere else to turn to. At least the husband has the, has the shoemaker to interact with uh, his parish at the church. Uh, he plays the organ, all of that. So the fourth phase is keeping you hooked by making you believe that you're going to, to, to miss out. As you can see, this guy becomes very brash, very prone to mood swings. It makes the husband feel afraid that maybe if he doesn't comply completely to all of his demands or whatever they might be, he will miss the chance of witnessing a second shout or going deeper into it. And then, of course, they play on your fear of uh, actually finding out that you've been played. Because if you notice, he keeps on going back to Crossley, even to the point when the guy kicks the chair across the room and tells him to move out because he's going to have sex with his wife. He's still in the middle of a haze of this cannot be happening. And that is all because if, he, if the husband realized at that moment, look, I've been an idiot all along, that would destroy him in his uh, psychology even more than whatever Crossley could do. And that is why we, we witnessed the mental breakdown at the end of the, of the film. The guy is so destroyed by this notion that he had been an idiot all along that he cannot live with himself anymore. I, I just occurred to me that what he tells you as an unreliable narrator, this is a true story, but he's going to vary the details. You just have, laying out the way that that plays out with a, with a, a pathological narcissist, cult leader, con man person. He's telling the story about what he does to people. And you know this, is, this plays out the same way in any interaction with anybody else. He just varies the details. So he's telling a true story, which is another thing about people who have a, a you know, psychopathology is that they tell you usually right out front. And they tell something them, honesty. Yeah, they tell the truth on themselves. You know, first thing, and then it's on you whether or not you believe them. Like, that's just a classic thing. Like, you know, people, bad people tell you they're bad people. Listen to them because they're telling you the truth. Before we continue any further, I do feel another ritual cleansing is called for. We shall prepare the soaps and our many tools and our communal bathing basin that we all will stand in together and we will enjoy with each other the ritual cleansing of commercial enterprise before we go on. Uh, I swear, <laughs> capitalism brings me to a lather. But you know why the bad people are usually the object of fascination of their victims? I mean, in, of the people that are, like in this case, of vulnerable persons. You see, uh, you know archetypes, the Jungian uh, theory that there is something common to all of us in the sense of that we recognize some certain patterns as intrinsic to human psychology. In other words, if we see an athletic guy in spandex in the middle of the street, you might not immediately assume that the guy is nuts. You'll probably think that must be a superhero or maybe they're shooting a superhero movie. Well, the figure of the shaman, one classic figure in cinematographic terms is Master Yoda in Star Wars. And if you notice a thing, Yoda doesn't teach by explaining it as if it were an Ikea manual. Doesn't tell Luke Skywalker, look, you do this, you take three breaths and you continue. No, no, no. He goads him. He puts him in a series of tests that the, the initiate must fill out in, 
fill out the blanks with the expectation. That is what a shaman is. It, it, it is an archetypical figure of trust. So when somebody confesses a horrible thing or a methodology of exploiting people, you do not wish to believe that this is happening, first of all. You do not want to be close to this person also. But as a survival mechanism, you try to be the most agreeable with them, lest should you be put in danger. And then you start thinking, well, okay, this person is bad, but from the moment they open up to me, maybe they were bad because they had a good motive, if there is any. You immediately start filling in the blanks. And this is what Crossley also does in the movie. He just comes up to you, tells you he's killed six of his born children. And uh, when questioned, why would you do that, you piece of shit? <laughs> the guy says, well, because I didn't plan to stick around. He shows this in such a natural manner that from the sheer shock of processing the information, you have no other choice but to agree because it shocks you. If you also notice how Crowsley gets into the, into the husband's house, he just sits there in front of his house and walks right in. Just think about it. If some unknown guy showed up to your house when you are returning from, from your job and he's just sitting in there, what would most of us do? Probably, you know, you try to gauge the situation to see if the guy is armed or if he's dangerous or if he needs help. A lot of people would probably think, look, uh, maybe I've been homeless. Maybe some of my friends have been homeless. Maybe I can let this man come inside, have a shower, have a warm drink or whatever, and then send him on his way. You want to believe that there is a, a, a little human kindness left in this world. And since we don't see it around, you usually think, then it's up to me. And that is how they get you. They play on your martyr complex. It's not a bad thing because you want, to, you want to make things be better. But the problem is thinking that you are going to make the difference. And you are going to make the difference with this piece of shit, <laughs> especially well, and, if they ever find a body. Yeah. And, and people too, by and large, uh, the studies have shown like human beings are statistically bad at risk assessment. Very bad <laughs> at it. But the flip side of it is the majority of people think they are good at it. So being in those situations where you think you've assessed something and then even being presented bald-faced, oh, I murdered my 18 children, this creates this cognitive dissonance. Like, but I've assessed this person as being safe. I don't want to accept the alternative because I trust my own judgment. So they just kind of like look for the ways to justify that in their own heads. Right? Once you've made that initial judgment, oh, I'm going to judge this person as safe. I'm staking something of my reputation on that. I'm yeah. making this decision, therefore I'm a rational being. Then as you make another step and another decision and another, you've got more to lose by turning around and saying, oh, I was wrong all along. It turns out he's been tricking me. And you've yeah. got more to turn around and say, I've been fooled all along. And it's harder to do that the more steps you've taken and the more times you've, you've agreed to a little step forward. Well, yeah. it, it, ha it has been shown that, you know, it's being proven you're wrong actually causes pain on the same level as physical pain. Yeah. Oh, and, really? Yeah. yeah. And that I mean, Alex, very interesting. what you were saying before about um, like how there's, there's sort of like gradual steps of introduction more and more into the potential occult or, or power of, you know, that this, you know, that this personage, right, this cult figure is, is offering mm -hmm. and you don't want to miss out, right? I mean, certainly they've seen that uh, manipulative cults, that is what they do. They have very like prescribed 
steps along the way to gradually invite you a little bit further, a little bit further in. So you invest a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So you don't, even if you start to see things that raise those red flags and you actually see them, you don't want to back out because you've already invested so much, right? There's that this sunk cost. Fallacy. Exactly. Beat me to it. Yes, exactly. And also the need for appraisal because when mm -hmm. an mysterious person approaches you, 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 I've also seen this in lots of cryptocurrency scams, by the way, uh, when the deeper they the deeper they snag you in, they'll tell you things like, "Look, I've noticed that you are smarter than the rest. That you are caught above everyone else." Mm -hmm. And then you think this person is opening up to me their, their deepest secrets, their their livelihood. That must be because I'm somebody worthy of that. But what they're doing is they're just opening your wallet. <laughs> that in the best of cases, because locally, I'll just put it <laughs> yeah. briefly in one line. Mm. Uh, we had a case of a girl who fled the country when she was just exactly 18 years, when she could purchase a ticket on herself. But she had been manipulated by a guy since almost age 12. And it began with, wow. the, with, with the small increments of, I'm learning uh, her first candle spell works and all of that, you know, the typical entry-level teenager witchcraft, you would call mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, after a while, this guy said, look, I'm going to be straight with you. Uh, obviously, the world is going to end. And he was telling it to her instead of everybody else in the group. Why? Because, of course, he was interested in a very young, impressionable team. Mm -hmm. But she thought, oh, this guy is telling it to me because I'm above everybody else in the group. Mm -hmm. And the end result, they found her thankfully alive in the jungle. She returned back to, to the country, but she came with a child in tow, a child of the, of the cult leader, who, by the way, was living in the middle of the swamp somewhere in South America and was actually producing child pornography with his own children, which had, he had been fathering with local women. Yes. Mm. Oh, my God. We are usually also very sensitized towards uh, easy horror. Ancient Voorhees, for example, you see that guy bursting through your door, you know already what you have to do. But you do not want to believe that people are capable of sustained evil. You understand the impulsive need to kill, rape, or rob someone, you say, okay, this guy has very impulse control. But when you realize that somebody can do that for years, just to take your daughter away, it, it's boggling. You do not wish to believe it's true, but it does happen. The, you kind of, I, we kind of skimmed past this already, but like one of the things that I wanted to, to kind of touch on, we were talking about when they're initially hooking someone, basically using people's humanity and their desire to be kind and polite as, as you know, weaponizing those against the people who use them. You know, like we all want to have normal human conversations. We all want to interact with people. But when you have a malignant narcissist, basically someone who is a predator of people, you know, the way that they use your inclinations to politeness as springboards to their outlandish and horrifying claims, you know, like, for example, he's saying, I killed all my children, you know, which are intended to sort of blitzkrieg your your psychological defenses and push you into your amygdala state. So, so hijacking your emotions is extremely effective at achieving psychological domination. You know, we can see this on a grand scale with, you know, we saw this with, with Trump, for example. He's able to say things that get right down into that lizard brain, which, is, you know, your rational thought, and this is the thing that, that really is the failing of the enlightenment era is everybody is like, well, if you just educate people and get them thinking rationally by habit, no, we are emotional creatures. We're not rational creatures. We make emotional decisions that we then later rationalize intellectually because our prefrontal cortex 
is downstream from the amygdala. The amygdala is in charge. If consciousness is formed by a conclave, much like our, our little group here, the amygdala is the 500 pound gorilla who is like, shut the fuck up, we're doing this now. You know, and everybody's like, oh, okay, okay. You know, and your, your prefrontal cortex is the, is the 98 pound weakling who happens to have an IQ of 250, but you know, can't punch their way out of a wet paper bag. You know, and the amygdala is like, nope, survival reflex, let's get you in there. So it's really effective at shutting down executive function, rational thought, you know, and, and, and putting you into that state. And people you know, like Crossley in this movie, but you know, like these, 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 these grand sociopaths that, that are kind of running society, are really effective at at triggering trigger sorry are really effective at triggering your amygdala and putting you into that fear state into that lizard brain state. Um, yeah. Much as I hate to admit anything positive about the son of a bitch, Steve Bannon had a point when he said politics is downstream from culture, which is why they folks like him focus on igniting cultural wars because they get people fighting over emotional stuff and. Then, if you can get them retelling the story to themselves, then you can affect where politics flow from there. That's the sort of the politics of the big lie. I don't. I'm sorry. I'm getting off onto a tangent. Here, Tribalism and uh, the tendency of creating false memories. That's what they play you on. They don't yeah. give you so solutions. In, in a, in your eyes. And for one last time, and I assure you, it's the last time I will herd you all into the collective bathing receptacle. We must cleanse our bodies alone and with each other, applying the soap readily, the soap that is called advertisement. It's lubricating my skin. <laughs> I think there is no response to that. <laughs> it's not lubricating I was just my mind. Say that's slippery sure. in a very sensual way. But... In effect, the, the terror shout may not be real, but the terror is very real and can affect us and can cause us to do things and should be something we're all aware of. Very well that is why, this is why some of the most ancient uh, methods of killing somebody through sorcery, anthropologically speaking, are not doing something behind their backs. It's actually making it public. In Louisiana and New Orleans, it was a... a one of the practices to leave the dolls at somebody's doorstep or even more horrifyingly nail a rooster to the door when you would see that you would just uh, psych yourself into an early grave by playing on your nervous system so that is also one of the things i wanted to mention how so admittedly my study of occultism you know what or what some people also call chaos magic is limited i mean i've studied as i said psych uh, physiology and clinical psychology to a degree. Um, and I understand that a large part of occult practice is psychology, you know, which is to say sort of whether positively or negatively hijacking the placebo slash nocebo effect for the benefit of either the subject, the practitioner, or both. Just for those listeners, they don't necessarily know the placebo effect is when your brain affects a positive change in the body because it's been influenced by an outside source. So like commonly a sugar pill, nocebo is when the brain affects a negative change for a similar reason. So for example, if you tell someone they're going to feel better after you give them a pill or say a blessing, they often do. Or if you tell them that this pill you give them has side effects, those side effects will sometimes manifest. Or if you pronounce a curse, like you tell someone the land is cursed, then suddenly it doesn't produce anything. Well, it's because these people have been influenced to think, well, this land isn't going to produce anything. So I don't put in as much effort into it. 
Um, and the placebo effect is inarguably powerful. I mean, double blind studies have shown effect sizes can be greater than 50%. Um, for in the US, uh, in order for a new drug to be approved by the FDA, it has to demonstrate an effect size greater than placebo. Um, and what's interesting is that many psychiatric medications have effect sizes only marginally better than placebo. So what I, what I wanted to ask you is that, so it, because the human mind is a pattern recognition machine and it's how we survived as hunter gatherers and we were really good at recognizing patterns even when there is no pattern there and they're in play whether we want them to be there or not. Um, like for example, like you, you learn a new word and then within 48 hours you hear it again or you get fixated on a specific number let's say like the number 23 and suddenly you start seeing things adding up to 23. Um, how would you parse the practice of magic as being like hacking the placebo effect via pattern recognition abilities of the brain versus things that are legitimately inexplicable? There is a worrying trend with the uh, I, I rather like to call the occult as I refer to it as sorcery, because etymologically speaking, comes from the root word to sort out. And that is what most of rituals, most of practices consist about. Uh, the only way to, to know if what you're doing is inducing hysteria on yourself or the body to kick in and heal whatever troubles you have or the mind is when you are doing something that you do not need the recognition of others to demonstrate. For example, most of the practices we are familiar with through either Hollywood or uh, the things we know involve uh, group rituals, involve an audience. That is also what the, what the shamans do. They induce uh, a certain mental state on a person to create changes, whether for good or bad. That's on the, on the primitive scale. Now, what I want to say is that most people go into the occult thinking that it is a very easily demonstrable practice and that they just need to follow a series of steps when it usually requires a buildup. Because the moment you are doing actual, uh, an actual veritable effort, what you're doing at most is forcing the causal flow of reality. In other words, some people want to get easily rich with, with, with magic and all of that, right? They do their thing and they think they're going to win the lottery. Well, if you didn't buy the ticket, will be no possibility for that. If you didn't have a job, you wouldn't get a possibility of a raise. What usually happens is that people convince themselves that something has happened, false memory, and they justify it, so they start believing in their own power. But very few people are willing to do the real practice and the, the grueling task, which is, for example, telling somebody, look, you're going to get up every single night from 12 till three in the morning, you're gonna just sit down and you're gonna start repeating a certain word patterns, incantations, whatever, and you're going to do this every day for a week without failing once. Most of people give up. We've also seen, for example, that the human body uh, can be worked to, to extremes of, uh, how you call this in English again? <laughs> yeah, of development. But with all the science we have today, 99% of us are not really fit or in shape, right? Because it takes a considerable effort to even start. That is also what happens with the, with the occult. 90% of it is group hysteria and convincing yourself that something has happened. 
the remaining 10% requires of you to reach a certain mental state of belief and then snowball the effects. So the only thing that I would say in this movie that has a supernatural element, they would say, hey, this looks like the real deal, is when Crossley finds the belt buckle, or shoe belt buckle of the wife. Nobody knows that he has it. He doesn't even show it to the victim. He just manipulates it, somehow gets his wife to be more complacent. In a way, there is the result you're seeking. It did not depend on the validation or the belief of anybody else. It happened, you did it in secret, and that's what you get. And that is the only way of demonstrating the capabilities that, hey, this really works. The only thing is that I would like to, to warn any, any listeners is that the occult should be taken as a hobby. I think it's something interesting that, uh, that you check every, every once in a time, and that's about it, because otherwise the cost is very high, both monetarily and in disappointment. And unless you're willing to put yourself through a lot of discipline, it's better not to make your life center around it, especially around people who you think that your results will depend. In the case of the movie, the, the antagonist. Closely. I mean, that, that's been really fascinating. Uh, you've raised some really remarkable points, especially about the buckle being the only thing nobody else sees. None of us mm -hmm. picked up on that as being the only truly supernatural element. And that's brilliant. Yeah, no, Thank that was you. those were the issues I was having with the film. And you've kind of put your finger on it of like, most of this doesn't feel like it's really a supernatural film to me, just a psychological manipulation film. But you kind of yeah, when you when you look at it, there's only one real element that you have to suspend disbelief for. Yeah. And you've you've really um, you've really picked that out, and you've you've put a different gleam on the film for us all there, and that's been wonderful. And thank you very much for providing your your guidance and uh, your expertise. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope <laughs> we can. Uh, I hope we can rely on you in the future if we ever need your expertise again. And could you tell us is there any way for our listeners to uh, see more of your your writings if they want to learn more about what you have to say? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, around the end of 2019, I began a blog to warn my closest friends of any impending doom as we've gone through. And uh, with time, I realized that uh, the, the hysteria brought up by, by the isolation got a lot of people into doing very awfully stupid things. And as a matter of fact, I used to follow a, a known occultist called EA Coating, and his channel on YouTube got uh, blocked and disabled because one of, the, one of the people who was in his forums thought it would be a wonderful idea to murder two girls in a park, thinking that would get him. Yeah. So after that incident, I aim to educate people free of charge always because this is a hobby. The occult is a very nice hobby, but it makes people do horrible things because they are seeking a shortcut. Example is human or animal sacrifice. Many people think that if you do such a horrible act, that you will get great results, which should lead the question, did it work for the Aztec or the Mayan empire? They wanted corn and all they got were Christianity and the Spaniards. Yes, I am to educate, write articles on where should you start if you have such interest in that. And you can find this in uh, my blog, which is trashshaman.blogspot.com. Com. I'll provide the link and whatever you need. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I put my ramblings there. So 
I'll probably move into a video format because I understand a lot of, a lot of people don't have time to read the horrible walls of text I plop there mercilessly. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, when I want people, 2,000 words, yeah, deal with it. No. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be providing your link uh, in in along with our own podcast. And thank you very much. This has been wonderful. And thanks for your time. You've been very mm. enlightening to all of us. Yes, thank you very thank much you. Uh, for joining us, Alex. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, sadly, this conclave, as all conclaves, must once come to an end. And so, I formally announce this conclave to be concluded. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, Andre Luke Martinez, and special guest, The Trash Shaman. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland, graphic design by Andy Slack, music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. And if you like what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.